This is TV Take, Variety's television podcast. I'm Daniel Holloway. On today's episode, we talk with Noah Holly, executive producer of FX's Legion. Later, critics Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Frampke will discuss the best shows on the air right now. Stay tuned. Noah Holly, thank you for doing this. No worries. So when did you come to realize that season three would be the last for Legion? Well, I pretty much knew that going into it. I mean, I knew there was a three-act structure to this story, and there was a possibility that maybe that doesn't literally translate to three seasons. But I think what I found really in the middle of season two is that this show is a lot, for people, you know, episodically, it doesn't want to be long. You don't want a 52-minute episode of Legion because it's just a lot for you to process as an audience visually, story-wise. If I do my job right, your brain goes to a lot of places and you're a bit tired at the end because you've been working, you know. And, and so I think I felt like the same thing would stand true for the story as a whole, which is like, you know, we have a story to tell and we're going to tell it as concisely as possible um, but we're just not going to tell it in a traditional way. Well, you just said that the show is a lot. That's not something that you really hear producers say a lot about their show. Oh, yeah. Um, is that something uh, – but it definitely rings true for this one. Is that something that you intended as you were sort of thinking about in the very beginning, the aesthetic and, and, and the pacing of it? Well, you know, I always thought – that the show was going to be subjective. The experience of it would be David's experience of the world. And if you're talking about a character who isn't sure what's real and what isn't real, then that becomes the audience's experience, you know, which becomes surreal. And, you know, television does a lot of things, but the one thing it doesn't really ever do is the surreal. You know, Hannibal had some surreality to it, certainly, but it's rare. Um, and, you know, what you end up doing is you you divorce an image from information, right? So the audience is watching something, they see something, and they don't know what it means. How does it connect to anything else? They don't know. Um, and my hope was that the deal that I was making with the audience was you don't need to know right now. You will know eventually. It's not a mystery box. Um, but it's tied to David. When David gets clarity, you will also get clarity. At the same time, with all the surreality that is sort of baked into it and at its core, people have to be emotionally invested because at the end of season two, you have to care that David, you know, fucks up in the way that he fucks up yeah, and then does essentially a heel turn. So what has been your attitude toward, like, you know, pursuing these really bold aesthetic choices that the show makes, but also trying to keep it rooted in something where you're invested in these characters? Well, you know, there is traditionally, intentionally or unintentionally, I, I find in, in a lot of these superhero movies that the idea that might makes right, right? And that, and that every conflict is solved through war, ultimately. So whether it's an Iron Man movie or a Batman movie or, you know, ultimately it's a fight and the stronger person is going gonna, is gonna to win. Um but I think we have to look at that idea of might um, and, you know, especially, um, you know, even the, the, the trope, the Spider-Man trope, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. You know, 
a lot of the audience for comic books and then these movies is is young men of a certain age, you know, boys 13 to men 25. And, you know, I felt with the story, it's important to talk about male power and the power in an everyday way, not the not evil with a capital E, but the things that we do to each other and and how that's not okay. Um, And so, you know, there was a process to getting you invested in David's story and then taking him through that that last episode of the second season where, you know, you've been rooting for this love story the whole way and you feel like I want this relationship to work out no matter what. And so when Sid believes that David is the monster and she turns on him and he and he's shocked by that and he thinks, I just need to figure out, I need more time. And he erases her memory so that he can figure out like how to make her love him again. Like in his mind, that's the love story. And potentially in the audience's mind, that's the love story also. And then he goes to her in the night and he says, I just love you so much. And, you know, has, you know, has sex with her. And, um, and it may be that the audience is also okay with that in the moment because it's a love story and they feel like, you know, I want these people to be together. And it's not until she says very clearly, you drugged me and had sex with me, that the whole thing comes into context of what really happened, which is that he removed her consent. And so she couldn't consent to, to the sex and therefore um, it's a rape, basically. Uh, and... In that way, we put ourselves on a head-on collision with hero or villain, basically. Um, but from David's point of view, which we realize in season three, you know, is is that he's in, he's a narcissist, and and he can't see himself the way that the world sees him. He can't look at his behavior and see bad. He sees. He says, "I'm a good person. I deserve love," and that's that's a driving force for him. What then are the things that you have to be? careful about going into season three because you have a character in which the audience has had up till now rooting interest and now that character is a rapist so you obviously want to be careful not to exonerate him for what he did in any way or um or the audience can't be allowed to root for him in the same way right for, for anymore right yeah i don't think so i mean when you watch the first episode you'll see that that the first two seasons of the show were really subjective. You know, you were in David's state of mind and in his his point of view. The third season starts with a wholly new character, and you follow her for the first 20 minutes of the show. And And the first time you see David, you see her through – you see him through her eyes. So um, – so immediately you have an outside perspective on him. You're looking at him obje- more objectively, you know, and he's he's talking about how, you know, he was in a psychiatric hospital and she's like, you were in a psych hospital? And, you know, I mean, we just sort of see what he must look like to someone on the outside, which is, you know, he's turned himself into a kind of guru and cult figure. Um, but from the outside, you know, he, he looks a bit odd, you know, obviously. Um, and, you know, I think in doing that, it's not that we don't go back into his point of view at times during the season, but it, I don't think we ever see him naively again. How much of 
I, I realize you had a three-act arc from the beginning or near the beginning that you wanted to lay out, but the choices that David makes specifically in the season finale, I mean, there's a lot that you can draw from, like, very recent events, right? So as you were sort of crafting that element of the story, how much were you looking at, you know, the news and what has happened with some of these, you know, major figures, particularly in media, um, with the Me Too movement, with Time's Up, and then seeing some some of these men, um, you know, try to basically reinvent themselves in the, uh, a sort of similar way to what David is doing at the beginning of, th- of the third season when he's developed this following and, you know, is trying to frame himself as a new kind of good guy. Right. Well, it's all about consequences, I think. Um, and, you know, there's always a moment on Fargo where the worst character in the show says, I'm the victim here, right? Like that, there is that, that sense that, you know, that kind of what we begin to see is petulant sense that David has that, you know, his life was ruined when he was a baby and therefore he never had a chance and therefore he deserves X, right? Mm -hmm. He deserves love. He deserves, you know, a second chance. He deserves special accommodations, you know, which just isn't how, how morality works. You know, you don't get a pass because you had a hard time. Um, and, um, you know, I think, as a writer, I'm always interested in point of view and, and you know, the fact that it's never really white hat versus black hat. You know, it's never hero or villain in that clear cut away. And, and I think there is a, a real exploration of, you know, if he's not the hero, who is the hero? And obviously Sid's story, but also all... Lenny's story and Lauren Sai, who's coming in and Amber Midthunder, you know, like, um, you know, there's no shortage of point of view and, and, and heroism in the show. But the question becomes with David, um, do we write him off entirely? Like what, what can we hope for from this character? Right? Like, if we're saying at the end of season two that he's he has these abilities, but he also is mentally ill, right? Then what can you hope for someone? What re- revelations about ourselves can we have if we if we're chemically or, or psychologically unable to to really see ourselves in our journey? Can we can we look for real change from him? Are we looking for a moment of clarity? You know, can he redeem himself in some way? Um, you know, those are all the issues that we struggle with in this in this season, I think. Um, because the reality is that, you know, that defeat isn't change. Only change is change, right? So, you know, in, in a superhero movie, when the hero vanquishes the villain, the villain doesn't change. The villain is just lost, right? So, you know, how do we get to a point where we can where we can get to real change, you know, and and where where war is not the answer. Maybe there's a better solution. Maybe if we figure out our own problems, we'd fight less, you know? Um, and um, so that was my approach. That petulance that you were talking about earlier, where you know, something bad happened to me, so I am therefore entitled in some way that other people are not. Um, it's pretty prevalent in fan culture, which, as you pointed out earlier, is kind of, you know, the fans of these comic books. Was that for you 
some of the original motivation for, I mean, you've talked about this before, but Legion is basically a C-list character dug out of the X-Men library um, around which you built a very strange show. Um, was being able to comment in a sort of subversive way on that part of the the motivation for doing this? Well, certainly an exploration both of what the genre could do on screen in ways that I hadn't seen and certainly having grown up reading comic books and science fiction and, you know, part of the allure of, of them is they is that they blow your mind. You know, you see things and introduce to concepts and, and, you know, all of it is there um, to expand your consciousness as opposed to just telling you a story. Um, and then, you know, at the heart of it for me was let's strip the genre out of it. Can we make something that feels like the best show on television as a drama? Like the dramatic stakes of it, the dramatic interactions of it with taking the genre out of it. And what you end up with, hopefully, is is an adult, you know, um, and um, mature look at power and, you know, gender relationships and, and the way that we interact with each other and what it means to be an outcast and what it means to be different. Um, and, you know, if you are cast out by society... You know, and it's what the X-Men always struggles with, right? It's it's the duality of, of Magneto saying, you know, we have to kill them before they kill us. And he's kind of right. And then there's Professor X saying, no, we can teach them not to hate us. And he's also right. And that idea of that gray area, I think, is, is what makes that X-Men world so interesting. Can you talk about Lauren Sy's character? Because, as you said, we're going to uh, release this before the season premiere, but as you said, that first episode were sort of um, we're seeing much of it through her eyes, uh, especially for you know the first like two thirds, three quarters of it. Um, what what in the story did you feel dictated bringing in a new character that significant? And also, how did you find her because she's fantastic in the episode? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was the the if the central event in David's life happened to him when he was a baby, um, we have to be able to go there, you know, and, and both as, as, both in seeing what happened to him, but also it's where he would want to go. If, if he realizes like, I can't just leave division three and go somewhere and start a new life because they find him and they won't, he realizes there's no escape for him. And so the only way he can't get Sid back because of what he did, and and you know he entertains the idea, I suppose, of going back in the past to try to change her mind. But of course, that would also be another form of removing consent from her, because he would be the same person. She just wouldn't know. Um, and you know, so this idea of um, wanting to go back and try to change the central event of his of his life. So obviously, once you're talking about time travel, how are you going to do that? And and for me, you know, any problem is, should always be solved with a character, you know. And and how do you use the the genre to solve the characters? You know, what if if you have a character who has this a time traveling ability? That's a very unique ability with its own set, set of like what who would that person be? What would that ability do to their sense of time or 
fitting into a moment or belonging. I mean, you know, you you have a fight with your dad and and you know at the end of it you you go you just say, "Well, what do you want me to say?" And he says, "I just want you to say this." And then you go back in time 5 minutes and then you just say that and you avert the fight. Like if you have that ability, you know, you can you can kind of shape your life in a way that no one else has the power to. But you're also if you travel through time, you you don't really belong to any real present and therefore you're very distance from everybody else. So, you know, there was a lot of sadness to that character, even though she's a, you know, a terribly strong and, and, um, um, you know, relentless kind of person. Um, you know, we see her in the, in this whole first hour, just like she's not, doesn't let up. She's solving this mystery. She, you know, um, and then obviously once you write the role, you have to find the actor and, you know, Lauren, um, was in Tokyo, you know. Uh, I learned a lot of things about her uh, after the fact, including just recently learning that, you know, she she's also a visual artist who has drawn covers for Marvel comic books, you know, before we even hired her. So, you know, I didn't know any of that when she put herself on tape. She was just interesting to me. And, and for me, casting is really all about the instinct and the, and, and the presence on screen, you know, and she, she held my attention and the camera and she felt dynamic and, and, you know, and she'd never acted before, certainly professionally. Um, but she showed up on the first day and, you know, she was a total pro and natural. So we got lucky. Can you talk about your process for this show and how it differs from your process for Fargo? Yeah. I mean, Fargo, you know, it says it's a true story, which means it involves a lot of sort of coincidence and randomness and those sort of elements, which it turns out you have to plan pretty meticulously to make something feel random and have it impact the story in the right way. So, you know, that show is is very much crafted um, through an outline process and, you know, story beats and putting characters and all of that. You know, Legion for me is is sort of the the collision of of planning and improvisation. You know, which means, you know, I know before we start writing the season what the season is about, and a sense of landmarks along the way and where it ends and where it is in the middle. And each episode kind of has an identity. This is the episode where David is locked in his own mind, and Sid has to go out in the world and figure out which one of his memories are real. But other than that, I don't want to know too much about it because. Because I want to play with the material, because um, I look at my kids when they're down on the floor playing, and there's no, there's no pure act of imagination than that play, um, and this because the show is experiential and and um, you know hopefully inventive, you know that's the fun of it for me, and I feel like in the fun of it is where it shines, you know, even though we're dealing with heady subjects and and heavy interpersonal issues like the there's some whimsy to it and and hopefully each hour you're seeing something or experiencing something that that you feel like blows your mind a little bit where are you at right now with the new season of Fargo uh I have three scripts I've written the first three scripts um the writer's room is over um and I'm just getting uh, the scripts that come after that four five and six I guess I have that I have to read um and you know we're 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 into prep. You know we start shooting in Chicago in October, 
Um, and, um, you know, we're into the casting process and, you know, I'm going to go away at the beginning of July for a vacation that I, I hear that word means time off. So I thought, <laughs> oh, why haven't I heard that word before? Um, and, uh, you know, then I'll come back and, and dive right into it. With Legion coming to an end and Fargo, I mean, the understanding from FX has always been that, you know, they kind of wait for a cue from you as to whether or not you want to do another season. Um, how much TV are you looking at doing once you get through this next season of Fargo? Uh, you know, this this form of, uh, of, of storytelling, this kind of long-form storytelling, um, you know, both in limited form and, and in series form, I mean... You know, I have a, a real attraction to it um, because I like to explore points of view and work thematically, and you know, so so that I don't think that I'm I'm certainly not done telling stories in this format, and I, you know, I have a relationship with FX for a few more years, and and um, uh, you know, the fact that I've started directing films as well it's it just becomes a logistical puzzle about all right well we made the first one where would the second one go you know should i be lucky enough to make an, another film um but um you know i mean i've said before that my motto is what else can i get away with and the flip side of that is like i you know i still feel humbled that that i'm i'm able to keep keep going and and sort of have an idea for something that seems odd um, and that people will sign on to make it and that they'll let me make it the way that I that I see it, um, even though it's not necessarily something you can explain, like the experience you're going to have watching it until I make it. And often it's hard to get the money to show you unless I can explain it to you properly. And, you know, so it's a bit of a catch-22. Noah, thanks very much. Thank you. Summer is traditionally a fallow period for television, but that's changed in the peak TV era. Critics Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Framke discuss the best shows currently on air. So we are firmly in summer television at this point, which means that, frankly, uh, Dan and I have a little bit less to cover than we normally would. So this week we wanted to highlight some performances that we're really enjoying in summer TV right now. Uh, first, we're going to go to a really buzzy HBO drama that we actually did not cover on this podcast, so I'm glad we're talking about it now. That would be Euphoria, HBO's first foray into teen drama. Dan, talk to me about your favorite parts of this show. So... It's really interesting to me, and predictable, I suppose, that the pre-release buzz around Euphoria was around all the attention-grabbing prurian aspects of it. Of course, that is, you know, in many ways very interesting that HBO greenlit a drama about teen drug use and sexuality uh, that is vastly more explicit than a lot of what's on their air right now. Um, uh, what I think makes it shine and what makes it more interesting than solely prurient and something that will have a bit of a life beyond that first week buzz of, uh, burst of curiosity is the degree to which the central performances are done with real nuance and care. Everyone on the show is really good, but I want to talk about um, Zendaya and Hunter Schaefer. Zendaya is a performer that, candidly, I just really haven't seen in that much. Um, I 
was not in the right demo for her work on Casey Undercover. Even though I am a TV critic, I kind of like was asleep at the wheel on that one on the Disney Channel, and I have missed her movie work. So I come to her kind of new, and I find her performance really, really nuanced and interesting. And the fact that she, yes, is a former Disney Channel star is really kind of an unfair thing to put on her because this character she's playing, she makes the really interesting choice to play her character as like a cynical addict who's made the decision not to get better. And that is usually an arc you see uh, performed by actors, you know, 20 or 30 years older than is Zendaya. And so I think she plays the cynicism without it ever being overbearing or tiresome and in fact makes you feel every bit of the sadness around the fact that she knows what she's doing is wrong for herself, for her friends, for her family, but that she cannot stop herself. In contrast, Schaefer, who plays the new girl in town. Hunter Schaefer. Hunter Schaefer, yes. Hunter Schaefer, who plays the new girl in town, um, is the lightness to uh, Zendaya's kind of cynicism and is all you know, frothiness and airiness and kind of hopefulness and optimism, a picture that gets complicated as the show goes on. Yeah, I agree with all that, especially, I think, like you said, Zendaya's character could be really tough to take in less skilled hands. Uh, And I think that she does a really good job of shading her out in a way where you understand uh, that she's making some really bad choices, but also why she's making bad choices. That's also, you know, obviously a little down to uh, writer-director Sam Levinson. But Zanea really does such a good job with it that I think a lot of her scenes work in a way where I'm not sure they would otherwise. And, yeah, Schaefer is really good, and I'm really excited for people to see the next few episodes. We've seen four. Um, the first episode is really aggressive. Um, oh, sure, purposefully yes. so. Yes. And Schaefer, truthfully, does not get that much to do in it until pretty much the very end. But her character gets shaded out, and you get to see the she's a hopeless romantic who doesn't get to really have the romantic fantasies that she wants. Um, it's also notable that this that her character is the first really main trans character in a teen drama like this, and she which is a lot of pressure, but she handles it extremely well. So I am interested to see how people will find her storyline coming forward. Yeah, and I think that uh, trans representation on television this summer has actually been really powerful because you have Schaefer, a trans actress, playing a character who is trans, who has so much roundness to her beyond uh, struggles rooted in her identity, that's part of it, but that's not the whole story, and she's a really whole character who kind of comes off the screen. The same is true, I think, for the women of Pose. Uh, yes. <laughs> Pose on FX. You know, the story of it as an awards contender so far has really been kind of about Billy Porter, who is fantastic Incredible. and who does a really good job. But I, uh, Caroline, I really liked a piece you wrote kind of advocating for um, the actresses on the show as deserving of attention because it is such a great ensemble show. And I wonder if you could talk to me about MJ Rodriguez and India Moore. I sure can. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wrote this piece because, like you said, Porter's been getting most of the attention and, again, totally deserves it. I really hope we do see his name come Emmy nomination time uh, for a lot of reasons. Amazing veteran actor. But the show would not work without the ensemble of trans actresses who are 
um, also the reason why the show is really groundbreaking. And they have two amazing uh, actresses in MJ Rodriguez and India Moore. Um, I think you especially saw that in the second season premiere. In I feel I felt like Moore displayed so much, such a huge range in a way that. I think shows off exactly what she can do and how her character is integral to the show. And I also, when I wrote that piece, I think Rodriguez does not get the credit she deserves for handling some of the show's clunkier aspects. Yes, she tends to get every kind of beat of saying, this is a family and we stick together. Like all This is the, what the drag ball is. Exactly, this is all what... the exposition and all the, like less elegantly written emotional beats too. Yes, she's really saddled with a lot of the exposition. She has she is the glue that holds the show together and I think sometimes, you know, you can feel that because it is a lot for one person to have to <laughs> handle, but she does it extremely well and I really hope that in the second season and the just announced third season, which is very exciting, we get to see her um tackle some more beyond explaining the basics for maybe the cis straight audience that does not know this world. Uh, so I hope we, I, I would like them to be more in the awards conversation, is how I would put it. Yeah, agreed. But uh, some actresses who I don't think will have any trouble getting into the awards <laughs> conversation uh, are the women of Big Little Lies. I think we would be remiss not to include them in a in a segment about summer acting because, oh wow, a lot of acting on it's that a show. Feast. It's, it's, <laughs> it's good acting, it's also a lot of acting. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think we're recording this a couple days after the second episode in which we saw uh, especially Laura Dern attack some really delicious scenes where her character Renata has to deal with the fact that she might not have the stature that she so prizes and fully melts down about it. And I just love watching Laura Dern do that. <laughs> it's never not fun. It's she... The fact that she especially has been the subject of so many memes <laughs> is in some ways, I guess you could say, reduces the performance, blah, 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 takes it out of context. In another way, it's so exciting that the thing that we're making memes about is not, you know, some embarrassing moment on live TV or something from a, a, a you know, basketball game or something, but that it's a great actress's you know, mid-career performance is the stuff that people are clipping videos of and posting on Twitter as reaction is just like, what a testament to how well this performance works, in my opinion. Yes, I definitely have some qualms with uh, Big Little Eyes this season and last season where I felt like I could see the moments that they were like, and this will be a meme. This will be a great gift. And I'm like, all right. But... On the flip side of that, as you said, is the fact that they sell it so incredibly that it would be a crime not to. I think I feel this especially with uh, Meryl Streep's performance as Nicole Kidman's mother-in-law. Her lines are, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit. She's a really unsettling character, but I do feel like a lot of her lines aren't especially splashy, but because of the way Streep acts them, it's they become so magnetic. Yeah, if anything, she's written... She certainly feels real the way Street plays her. On the page, I'm imagining reading a script, she's so confrontational that she basically exists to be a plot function, and yet she's really brought to this strange, vivid life. I'm thinking about this moment in the second episode that was also a meme, where while speaking, she pulls her necklace over her chin and suspends it there by sticking her chin this out. This little cross necklace. Yeah, this little cross, so she's kind of displaying her cross at her nemesis, Reese Witherspoon, as though... Reese is a vampire she's warding off with her face. And 
it's just such a choice that, <laughs> that that is so that ends up being so right because it is so on the precipice of being so wrong. It's just really fun to watch these actresses attack the material was so I, I just I keep thinking I just keep saying like it's a lot of acting it's a choice which sounds really sarcastic when I say it but I do not mean that I mean it's really fun to just watch these actresses who are really good at what they do uh, make some take some big swings and ter- and have the room to do it on a show like this it's the kind of thing that I think makes television especially uh, interesting and fun is that they have the room. If they have this one episode next week, we're going to see them all make some more choices. I'm excited for you all to watch it. (laughs) Yeah. And if you're not a big Little Lies fan, that's okay. Because there's always more TV where that came from. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Melissa Rosenberg of Netflix's Jessica Jones. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.